Welcome to AOL. Please state your handle and the years you were active on AOL or AOL Instant Messenger. My name is Zone. That is Zone with a zero. I was always offended if people put an O in there instead of a zero because, you know, that's kind of a big deal in the AOL world. But I was from like, I would I would say 2000, which was around what, like AOL 6.0. So from uh, I would say from around 2000 to maybe 2012. Got it. And when did you first start using a computer? I'm not going to say like I was one of those kids that was like always on the computer. I would say around like 12, 13 ish, probably around, around then or around when AOL for me was popping. Like I didn't start using a PC until AOL was a thing. And how'd you get into programming? So of course I'm in like public rooms. Everybody can relate to the old town square lobby one, you know, thing, but uh, you know, I'm in these, lo- these lobbies and people are running these little programs. I'm seeing them. And I think like, man, that's the coolest shit I've ever seen in my entire life. Like that is actually, I don't know what it is, but it's cool. Well, what did the programs do? One of the programs I remember in particular was called Decipher and it was just like a password cracker and I'm seeing it, but I'm seeing it in all like uh, webdings or wingdings, right? So it's not font that I can read. So I'm like, you know, what's going on? So I'll do the old copy and paste and change the font. And I'm seeing that this guy's like hacking into people's accounts. And I'm like, I'm in, I got to figure out how to do this. This is some of the coolest stuff I've ever seen. So what, what, what do the windings have, the wingdings have to do with hacking into accounts? It didn't have to do anything with hacking the accounts, but when you are like chat sending into the chat room, right? So you'll chat send the name of the program the RPMs that you're getting, the amount of cracks that you've got, the amount of session tries that you have done, et cetera, right? But if you wanted to do it in like a public room, you would change your font to webdings or wingdings. So nobody actually knew what you were doing. So you could kind of communicate with like the lobby rats without too much confrontation about what it was that you were doing. Oh, so this was like almost like an encrypted chat or something between people. Right. It, it just showed the text in like in in like symbols versus letters. So unless you knew to change the font, you would think that they were just typing nonsense. You wouldn't even know what it was. Oh, okay. And so they have a program that would convert it would like convert the font into that specific cipher or whatever to read it. I mean, wingdings and webdings are just your basic fonts. You probably have them in your notepad right now on any computer they come with it. You okay. can just type them in and just like changing it to Arial or whatever, it would just change it to symbols. And in the programs, we would write chat sends that would send to the chat on AOLs. Kind of, I, I would really call it showing off now in my later years. Like, it, really just showing off that you had a fucking cool program that other people couldn't have and you would want people to ask you for it. So you would make cool chat sends that looked really sick and every minute it would send something to the chat room saying like zone is cracking at 1,214 RPMs and he has cracked 39 accounts and people would be seeing that like, man, that's pretty cool. Well, what is a RPM? Like rates per minute, like tries per minute, like how many, attempts of the a password to a screen name that you were, you know, running through every minute. Oh, okay. Got it. I thought I thought you meant rotations per minute. That's what RPM classically means because it says rates per minute. 
it could be rotations per minute, rotations of the passwords through the screen names per minute. Like, you know, it could be rotations, I guess. Could you do simultaneous login attempts or or was AOL, did it rate limit you to, to one login attempt per minute per IP address? Oh, no, you could do simultaneous login requests. You could run a million passwords on one account and it wouldn't really rate you. Um, but I would say I had never heard of anybody doing what I called reverse cracking at the time, right? So instead of running, let's say my screen name was just Zony Danza. So instead of running Zony Danza against a bunch of passwords, I would run a bunch of names against one password. So I would always avoid a rate limit had I found a method that was an internet method. Like if this is, yeah, now we're getting into like a deep conversation about it, but like on the internet, like you could find forms or like websites that allowed you to comment via your AOL account. So you could exploit the the website and try mass amounts of logins, which was way faster than just using AOL to try to log in and crack that way. So instead of, let's say, getting 60 tries a minute, you can get, you know, 60,000 tries a minute if you have a website. So if you could not get rate limited by the screen names and the passwords that you're trying, if you could just try one screen name against a bunch of passwords, you'll get rate limited on the website saying too many failed attempts, whatever. But if you run 10,000 three character names against all just, you know, a bunch of passwords, then you'll be doing a lot better because you won't be getting rate limited. It'll be like, it'll be like one password for every 10,000 three character, then to the next password for every 3,000, you know, or every three characters. So like, you'll never be rate limited if you did like reverse cracking. And I'd never seen anybody do it. I'm not saying that I created that. I'm sure somebody somewhere was doing it, but I had never seen it done. And I put them in my crackers all the time and let people have the choice. You can either forwards crack or reverse crack. It's really up to you. Yeah, I think that method was definitely really rare back then. I know I definitely seen the Russians use that for like an open RDP session. Right. Uh, They'll just rotate through a bunch of different usernames, like administrator or whatever. They, they call it password spraying, but a lot of times they'll, depending if it's an email address or something, they, they might have like, they might have password server credential up or they'll run it against a, a, a set of passwords. Right. How did you determine your dictionary? You could get on a website and it was called lenshell.com back in the day. It's still active or it was, it was called lenshellarchive.com nowadays. And it had all the programs and all the password lists. So basically what I would do is I would, get a list of just fish is what they were called, right? Emails and passwords of, you know, leaked databases. And I would just strip the passwords off of the database. But of course, you know, that was only if you wanted to really get into like a three character, like God, which was pretty much ungettable for me anyways, but like any kind of three character screen name, you would want to do like a brute dictionary attack. But basically if you wanted just fish accounts, just to have backup accounts, you would always use the basic one, two, three, four, five, six password, AOL, one, two, three, ABC, one, two, three, like, and all these crackers had them built in. So I guess throughout the years, I I had just seen enough of them to kind of compile my own common password list. That makes sense. And so you're talking about logging in on these third-party websites. So they were integrated like single sign-on with AOL and you would go against those? Yeah. So it would be like, like we'll, we'll just say it's like a website about 
recipes and you're looking up recipes and at the very bottom, you know, you scroll down and it's like, leave a comment and you can sign in with a bunch of different nowadays. It's like Facebook, Instagram, Gmail, whatever. But you know, in 2002, it was like sign in with your AOL account and those were like unlimited. So it didn't, you could run what we called multi-socket, right? So it would be a, a whole bunch of attempts at once. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to explain okay. it in like a, a layman's term because it's just like a nerdy way of saying things. It's okay. No. So, I mean, just to get a little bit more into the weeds. So we're using like MS shadow doc TLL or how, how were you making these calls? Was it, cause it sounds like maybe it wasn't through the GUI necessarily. You were, you weren't like interacting with the browser. You were more doing like HTTP calls or something. Like posts? Right, exactly. With, with, with what was called WinSock. So WinSock was like an OCX file, right? So you, in Visual Basic 6, you could just import and, and use these OCXs that gave you like different um, interface layouts and different type of things, right? And WinSock was one of the ones that you could use to send, I guess, internet protocols or internet internet shit i don't know just send stuff like to the a- internet http methods right right exactly yeah winsock was exactly that you could you would send your send data and then you would get back the return data and you could cipher through that to see if you got into the account or if you didn't get into the account and you know if you were using like what was called waol ocx which basically just used like regular sign-ins from the AOL uh, files, I guess. I don't I don't know. But it was basically like a one-second login, right? So you had to do one second for each login attempt. So it would be 60 attempts a minute. But with the website version, you could, with the WinSock OCX, you could load like 100 threads and be doing, you know, 30,000, 60,000 RPMs, depending on your internet speed. Okay, and it sounds like the request didn't go against the actual website, right? right? The, uh, sorry, like the recipe website, for in your example, th- because that request would first have to go to AOL, and AOL could handle a massive amount of login attempts, which is why you can do the high rate. And for whatever reason, AOL wasn't smart enough, or maybe didn't think at the time anybody would abuse that, so they didn't rate limit their API, it sounds like. Right, exactly. They Eventually, they caught on, of course, as they always do with any good method of spamming or cracking or anything they always catch on and and you know it goes downhill but you know at the time and i believe i sent you the, the screenshot of this cracker i made it was called doom doom like the video game um that got upwards of like 30 to sixty thousand rpms and i sold that program to numerous people for like two to three hundred dollars a piece so were you doing this for fun or to make profit i guess when you initially started this from the very beginning, I was like, this looks cool. I want to look cool. That's like some super nerdy, like I'm just a kid. I see this cool stuff happening online and this is all new to me. I'm like, I want to be the guy that stands out versus all these other people over here in the who's chatting list. Like I want people to recognize me. And then after it was like in one of the chat rooms, they opened up a program and it sent out a link and it was into it was to a private room. And it took me into this private room and it was like the gold mine of where everybody was just using these programs. And I got in touch with a couple of the people and they put me together with a cracker called Duma and I started cracking and I thought that I was just like the coolest kid on the planet. 
And then I decided I wanted to uh, learn how to make them. So I figured out it was Visual Basics and uh, uh, pirated me a version of Visual Basics and I fucking figured it out and learned it. And not all by myself, of course. I had numerous teachers, but, you know, I, I got... I got the hang of it pretty good, and I would say that I made a lot of programs that kids from the 2000s and up made, like used on a regular basis. That's really great that you got to collaborate. I mean, personally, when I was making programs, I didn't really have anyone to collaborate with, so it was it was very frustrating. And I did a lot of decompiling and then just kind of smashing stuff together. Yep. But did you find that when you collaborated with people, you were able to get stuff done faster and be more effective? It seemed like when you would do a collaboration, it depends on who you did it with. It would be if I was doing it with just some kid that nobody knew, they would immediately assume that I just did all the work and this kid didn't do anything. Or if so, if it was somebody bigger than me, they would assume that I didn't do anything. I was just still in their code and they were doing everything. So, I mean, it, it got a lot easier when I got a little better of a reputation because people were like, Oh, okay, well this is an actual joint project. But but in the beginning it was just, it it helped me, but people were doing a lot of the stuff that I couldn't figure out how to do. And my patience level was at about 0%. So every time that something was going wrong or it was just erroring out and I just couldn't figure it out, I was just ready to give up. So one person in particular, his name was Magic, and he made an MP3 player. That guy was a saint, and he really got me together. So I would say, yes, definitely. It definitely helped having people that knew how to program that were willing to take me under my wing, because if not, I would have no idea how to do absolutely anything, most likely. I wouldn't know what a base file was. I wouldn't know what OCXs were, DLLs. I wouldn't know what any of it was. So I, I pretty much contribute all my programming skills to a guy named magic and it sucks because i never got to talk to that guy again after like 2002 oh it does suck it sounds like you started out uh, and it seemed like maybe it was a like a notoriety type thing like i think if you, you know maybe some people were could equate it to like you see the skateboard skateboard and a skate right. park you're like oh i want to do that right. on a skateboard and then you learn how to do it but then in your case is the cracking and at first, maybe it was just because you would, because it looked cool. You wanted to do it, and then you started cracking, and then from there, it sounds like you got good enough and wrote good enough programs that people wanted to buy them. Do you know why they wanted to buy them? How do you sell something like that? People begun to want to buy my programs when they realized it wasn't the crackers that was the main selling point. That's just it was a later on down the line situation of what I sold the spamming is where people really wanted to start buying the programs because when they realized that I was making hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars a week, just running these programs, it was real easy for me to say, look, I'll sell it to you for 300 and within three or four weeks, you'll have that back. And and then you have a program that just, you know, brings you money nonstop. And I was always a guy that updated mine. I always sent the updates to people. They were always clean unless I leaked like a dirty version of it in a private room, which I did. Um, But all the people that bought anything from me that actually got the legitimate version from me always had a clean version every time. They never got anything 
that would steal their their accounts, their fish, any of their cracks, nothing or none of I didn't I didn't add my messages into the spammers and every 100 messages send one of mine nothing like that. Only on the ones that I leaked that people shouldn't have been using anyways. Oh, interesting. That, that That's really cool. So you kind of had like your own <laughs> protection in it. But like, what about like, how did you prevent people from pirating your legitimate version? Because you could get what was called their volume ID from their computer, right? And, and of course, in the early 2000s, people weren't just running out buying brand new computers or, you know, it wasn't that easy just to get something to replace or spoof your volume ID number for your computer. So I made it to that every time my program loaded, it would check your volume ID number against one that I had stored in the database. And as long as it, you know, was you on your computer, it would open. If not, it would just immediately close and it wouldn't do any damage to anybody. You know, everything would just be smooth. But when I sent the cracked ones out, and people would just open them. It would just bypass right through because I would just take that code out and it'd make it look like it bypassed when in reality they were just feeding me everything that they got. That's that's really funny. So you've released your own cracked version. That's really smart. You had to, you know, when you're spamming like that, you run through accounts a lot because people seem to realize that, man, I didn't send out these 575,000 emails that are in my outbox. I don't know what happened. I'm just going to go ahead and change my password. So you, you had to stay up to date and stay with a current good supply of accounts. Cause if not, you wouldn't be able to send them to the chat rooms and make them talk to their buddies and send emails and et cetera. So you always had to have new accounts because, and for multiple reasons, not only do they die, but you can't, continuously spam your the same buddies on your buddy list you need new people with new buddies and then you need new people in new chat rooms so you can't continuously have the same bots because they'll always end up getting blocked or the names will be changed so i decided as i'm cracking on myself if people want to use an illegitimate version then i'll take what they get i mean they'll have them too but the chances of me killing them before they do are probably pretty high. So I'm going to keep my stockpile pretty high while everybody's using this version that they didn't pay for. That makes sense. So the spamming, was that via email or, or instant message? It's all of it. It's chat spamming. It is instant message spamming. It's buddy list spamming. It is email spamming. It is all of the above. It is red tube comment spamming. It was all of it. Everything to, everything to do with direct messaging somebody on AOL outside the red tube comment spammer thing. But all those other things, all anything that you could do to talk to somebody, we were spamming them. So how do you get paid for spamming? So you will sign up to like an affiliate. Like my affiliate before I stopped was like, I want to say it was like, one of them was like hugetraffic.com. And then we have like, adult friend finder and then dating gold and, and crack revenue and all these other ones. Right. So you sign up to these websites and you promote their offers. When you get a conversion on one of their offers, you get paid. So it was really sign up to the website, get your conversion links, shorten them on like a URL shortener, like tiny URL or, or something along those lines, shorten the URL and just blast links to everybody that you can get, you know, your hands on. Somebody's bound to convert somewhere. 
And that's where you got paid. Interesting. So what made you decide to stop? You know, I just grew up. That was pretty much it. Like it was to me, one of those things was like, yeah, AOL will always be there. But now I'm like, I got a car. I got an old lady. I'm doing, I'm doing shit that is un AOL related. I'm working like AOL is on like some back burner, always going to be there type shit. I never figured AOL would go away. I mean, of course I, I knew in the back of my mind at some point it would, but I didn't think it'd be so soon. AOL was dying, but fuck, we all loved AOL. Everybody that I talked to loved AOL. So I don't know, but of course it was free. We weren't paying them. So what could we expect them to really keep it open for the rest of their lives? Yeah, that's true. So what are you doing doing now? Are you like still programming? I program here and there. It's nothing major. It's nothing hacking related. It's nothing like, eh, I don't want to say nothing hacking related. Uh, now my, my spew is like, like Python, right? And like hacking Wi-Fi's and pen testing networks and, and stuff like that. So I've wrote a couple tools to like do pen testing Wi-Fi account or Wi-Fi hotspots and stuff like that in Python. But it's it's nothing major. It's always just something low level, like like a, a chat spammer for a game that I play on the phone that like recruits people to my alliance and, and type of thing. Like nothing nothing money making or anything like that. I've you know, with with all the spam filters and all that shit these days that you really you really can't get much past. So you've moved to automating for other platforms then. Okay. That, that's interesting. And are are you like doing uh, of like real penetration testing for like for like a company? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm I'm not I'm not pen testing my own networks. What <laughs> fun would that be? No, I mean like like are you like a red teamer or do you like get hired to penetration penetration test networks? Oh no, no, yeah. I, I just do it from the locations that I'm at. I'm I'm not hired by any websites to pen test their security or any places to pen test their passwords or anything. I just, you know, the, the way I got into pen testing people's Wi-Fi networks was these little pricks on, on the uh, PlayStation would boot you offline every now and again when you were spanking them in a game. So I decided I need to get access to all my neighbor's Wi-Fi's. So if I was ever get booted off, I could just get back online. So that's really where it got me to pen testing Wi-Fi accounts. Interesting. Have you considered, getting like uh, official pen testing training and trying to become a pen tester? No, not really. I, I didn't even graduate high school, so I don't know what exact qualifications you would need to do that sort of thing. But like when, when I was about 16, I was just like, school's not for me. I'm making a lot of money online. I don't want to deal with this school shit. So I just dropped out of school. So I don't know what kind of education you would need to do that kind of stuff. Probably not much. They're probably looking for people that just can sit around and pin test stuff all day. Yeah. So the starting place to be the offensive security certified professional certification. And that that's a certification that's kind of like the bare minimum to get your foot in the door for a place. And then you can right. then you start pen testing like real companies and stuff like that and get paid for it. I wonder what the pay for that is. Cause that sounds like that would be a pretty good gig to have. Yeah. You could certainly look on something like sorry.com or Glassdoor, but I think pen testers, uh, the entry salary is somewhere, somewhere between like 60 to 70,000. And then 
just goes out from there. Right, right. You know? That's a that's a decent chunk of change. So you created experience for AOL, then AOL kind of went away, and you went to some other online platforms. And I've noticed that other like mobile, you mentioned mobile apps. So like the app Kick, for example, there appears to be almost zero moderation on that. And from what I've heard, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty much the wild west in there. And people take over rooms and send spam and stuff. Have you done any automation on Kick? No, you know, I've never really got into the whole Kick platform. That was like, I feel like that was coming up as I was like getting away from the internet. Like, so I, I never really got into the Kick thing, but I, I have heard some things about Kick and it seems like it's quite the the show over there. Yeah, I know from what I hear, there's a lot of like pedophiles on there and some people are making programs to kick them offline, right? And good for them. I mean, right. if you can use your skills for good, have you ever considered like using your skills for good? Yeah, I'll be honest. No, I mean, no, I haven't really heard uh, thought of it about doing any kind of like, like good deeds with it because the only thing I ever have done with it was like semi gray hat deeds. And I had never really heard too much about the, the kick pedophile ring thing that's going on, but I would assume it would be relatively easy to get these guys offline. Right. Uh, pretend that you're a, a kid bait that you're a young person, send them a link. That's a video or a picture of you. It's an IP grabber, grab their IP, DDoS them offline and grab their address. Like I, I feel like it would be a relatively easy thing to do. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Like the, the podcast I heard about, it was on Darknet Diaries. Like the dude was writing, writing programs that would take over their chat rooms and stuff and kick them offline. But I think a lot of enforcement is getting involved though, which is good. Like if you just Google the app kick in Google news, it's just like article after article of just like pedos getting put in jail. So I, 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 I hope now the authorities are like taking it more seriously, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. It'd be hard for them to not take it more seriously because I mean, the, the, if the evidence is there, how can you not take that seriously? Right. So it seems like you really, really enjoy programming and it's, it's interesting that um, you, it's, it's kind of like, this is just like another, like, like, like a different part of your life, like outside of work and stuff. Do you, if you could get paid to just code all day and and do hacking related stuff, would that be like your dream job? I feel like in the late two thousands, it probably would have been, but I didn't really learn too much outside of what I've learned on AOL for AOL coding outside of you know the little Python that I picked up here and there, but the majority of my skills were always like visual basics. And that was pretty much where I, I landed. And after AOL went down, I didn't really think that I needed to program for anything else. It never really crossed my mind to like make programs that did other things. So a lot of time had passed when I could have been learning like Java or anything that would be more relevant in today's world. So I, I feel like the, the it kind of passed where I should be. So it, now I don't think it would be a dream job unless I had already acquired all the knowledge that it would have taken to learn the stuff because it's not a short course to get real 
familiar with a programming language just for it to go like extinct and then nobody use it. And then I'm back to square one. No, no mentors, nobody that's going to have the patience with me to tell me, all right, come back in 30 minutes and we'll fix it after that. Like I don't have anybody to rely on to help me. So I don't feel like I would be able to do it by myself at this age. Yeah. There's definitely courses and stuff online like uh, Udemy and stuff, but I don't know. Uh, I kind of find like you, feel like you have to have a, it's totally hard to learn language unless you have a project, like a goal in mind. Right. And uh, that that's always, that's always tough. Yeah. There's, I just, I don't have anything off the top of my head that I would really need to make like that, or that I could think that would be a useful program. Everything that I ever made was, was money related basically. And, and it was all reliant on, old perverts online that wanted to meet singles in their area and, and that kind of deal. Right. And like random free Xbox ads on Craigslist to get people to put their email in. So I get a dollar off of every one of them type of thing. Like I, I just don't see that being a thing that I would want to do now when I was younger and there wouldn't be as heavy as a consequence. It didn't seem like it would be that bad, but you get caught doing some like mass hacking today it's not a good look. Right. Did you ever get in trouble? I would say the closest I came was when I was hacking Twitter accounts and I got into this like Canadian hockey teams, like verified Twitter account. I didn't know that I was in it. Right. So I would hack these accounts. And then of course I had a bot that I would log into all the accounts and go like tag people and tell them to go check this whatever out. Right. So I just loaded up all the accounts that I'd cracked and that hockey team happened to be in there. And I was like blasting porn links off on their Twitter account. And that made it into like the wall street journal. And I was shooting <laughs> bricks. Cause I was like, if they trace that back to me, that's, that's going to be, big time, you know, but it was in Canada. So I was like, hopefully they don't come to the United States to try to get me for this. And nothing ever came of it, but that was probably the scariest moment when I was like, oh man, this made it to the news. This, this isn't good. This could potentially turn out pretty bad. Was, was this from like your, your, your own network? Is that why it was so scary? Well, I mean, I used proxies of course, but they were always public. So they were real unreliable with they're actually going to like anonymize your stuff or not. Right. So it was like, I, I had a semi layer of security, but I didn't feel like it was secure enough that if let's say the FBI wanted to find me, that they, they wouldn't be able to get me somehow. Interesting. Yeah. I think today probably the legal way to do what you're doing. Well, besides the cracking, Right. Uh, is it's called brushing. Have you heard of brushing? No, I haven't. So I don't know if you've noticed, but on Amazon, they're like all these products have like five star reviews, right? Um, right. But you but you'll get the product and it's just a shit product. Right. right? <laughs> um, and so there's actually people, uh, their entire job, like their life revolves all day. And they just do fake reviews and that's they get they get paid like like a penny per review or something. It's like it's like us. It's almost like slave labor over in China, but um, that's like their full-time job is just to do these fake reviews. And in China, they call it brushing and it's like a totally normal practice in China. But these companies that sell products on Amazon that are from China, they'll hire these teams of brushers 
uh, to, to submit all these fake reviews, right? So if you think about it, you could have like your own brushing bot. <laughs> well, that, when you got to the end of that, that, that's what I was just thinking. Like, it, well, I can probably figure out a way to whip something up that does exactly what they're needing to do, but by itself without me having to do any of that. Just have like something that spins the words, right? So it'd be like, I love this review. I love this product. I like this product. I really like this product. I really, really love this product. Like there's something that spins the phrases and then just something that keeps going to the pages and pasting it in and press, you know, review. And that's the end. Yeah. I think it's a real cat and mouse game with, with Amazon. I've, I've read that some like relatively big sellers got shut down for brushing recently. And so I think it's gotten to the point now where they, they find, they find Americans that have like a good standing Amazon account and then they pay them, They'll like send them the product and then pay them and they'll tell them exactly what to say. It's gotten to that point where Amazon's like algorithms are so good. So I think probably brushing on Amazon uh, would be a little bit trickier than some other platforms, right? Right. Yeah. Just spinning it isn't going to be enough because they're going to see that it's pretty much the same message just with a different wording here and there. So they'll catch on to that really fast. A number of your skills, though, they also kind of relate to like what a security engineer does. So security engineers will... Like, like an entry level security sorry, analyst, security analyst will look at emails that employees submit uh, as phishing, right? So you'll have a little report fish button at a company. They'll, they'll click the button and the security analyst has to determine, is that email a fish, right? right. And so then you can like, detonate the link in a, like a browser sandbox, right? Um, or you could maybe run a curl against it. And depending on the user agent you use, that website might return a, a, a different a different result. So if you say you're Internet Explorer 6, it might try to do an exploit, right? Right. If you, if you say you're Mac, it might do nothing, right? It might go to a blank page or it could 302 redirect you to a, a page where it's like, oh, your flash needs to be updated for Mac, right? Um, so, and then also some of the some of the phishing nowadays, I've, I, I've, I've found like a, a whole phishing kit once online because the phishers, what the, Whoever was whoever was hosting the phishing website left their source code on the site, and in the PHP code, it actually had a list of IP addresses. That if the request comes from that IP address, it acts like it acts like a normal web page. Um, so the IP addresses it was specifically calling out were the ones like you know virus total and that kind of stuff. Right. So uh, it's kind of funny. It's 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 a real cat and mouse game too for the for the analyst to figure out. Oh yeah. Like, are sites malicious and things like that? Right. Um, and then also, like security analysts might uh, dump an Active Directory database and then try to crack all the user passwords in a company and say, "All right, fifty percent of the passwords in the company, uh, those those employees need to change their password because it's like summer twenty twenty one or right. winter twenty twenty or, or yeah. whatever it is." So. Um, also, sometimes uh, engineers and analysts have to write custom code as well to scrape different websites or do different things. I don't know. I feel like some of what you're doing translates to like the white hat side as well. I guess it depends how you look at it. Right. I mean, yeah, it could. You know, you could always reverse the roles, right, and have me like explaining these exploits to people that I've found. Right. So it would be really easy, I guess, to switch to a white hat side, but. I don't feel like I'm a any hat side at this point in my life. I, I don't really do anything. I just hang out and, and work. That's about it. Right on. 
So which, which programs are you most proud of that you made? I would say Doom was probably the bread and butter. That was the, the cracker that I made that was a super high RPM cracker. People kept saying I stole the code for somehow, but I was the only one that had a cracker that was that fast. So who the hell did I steal the code from? But whatever, that's that's back when, so who cares about that? But um, that, and I would say um, a spammer that I made, it was called Spambo, like Rambo, but just for spam. That's so funny. Yeah, um, and that one was like what you would call like an AIO cracker, like an all-in-one. It did chats, it did instant messages it did buddy lists it did emails it did everything it it scraped emails for you to eat to to send mails to it checked if people were online so you weren't wasting your time sending instant messages to people that were offline it it was it was the best spammer that i've ever used or made nice so do you feel like that time in your life you had a, a really high sense of accomplishment yeah, I feel like everything that I put out, I, tr- I was trying to put out new stuff every day because it was just like a good accomplishing feeling to have people curious and wanting the things that you'd made, just asking what you were making next or when you were releasing something next or if you were going to release it or how much it cost. It was it was a, just a really accomplished feeling on that side and the money side, right? So I'm as I'm making these, they're making me money via sales to people and they're making me money by like, you know, email signups and, and people following the links as I'm spamming. So it's like a double win for me at that point. So yeah, I felt pretty good at that time in my life. Nice. Right on, man. Well, is, is there anything else you want to, you want to mention or, or talk about from your time back then? Let's see. I just want to give a bunch of shout outs really to uh, we got like magic, of course. And then we got like Buddha and Rome and tags and L and sin and youth and, and uh, hell, I don't know. Just, just a bunch of random shout outs really. But outside of that, nah, man, that's, that's pretty much it for me. That's my AOL legacy. Basically it's short and sweet. That's, I'm sure there's more to it, but that's all that's off the top of my head at the moment. It sounds like you pretty much hung up your reins now, right? Yeah, I don't do anything like that. I feel like AOL was one of those once-in-a-lifetime things that you just had to be there for. There won't be another AOL. They have, like, AOL, and it's still out now. It's like AOL Gold or something, and you can sign up and pay for it and get online, and there's chat rooms. But there's nobody in them. There'll never be a, an AOL like we had or an AIM like we had. All that is in the past. So my reins got held up as soon as everything else got shut down. Welcome to AOL.